This is Tampa Bay's Tan Talk. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Units, code 503, stolen vehicle, 89, Volkswagen Rabbit, white. Come here! Go, 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 go! Grab their guns! Do it now! Kick them over to me. I said kick them over to me, Pele. My name is Jack, and you are... Natalie. Millionaire Dalton Foss's daughter is being held hostage by this man. You down to Mexico much? No, why? Because that's where we're headed. This is Chief Boyle. Get after that BMW! Domino's Pizza! You hurt my little girl, Heaven, I swear to God, I'll kill you myself! Why me? I go in for some cigarettes, and I wind up kidnapping the daughter of Dalton Voss. What are the odds? Whoa! Did you see that? That medical school truck is spilling out cadavers! Now that's disgusting. So you're gonna tell me why you're on the run? I was convicted of a crime I did not commit. Time to stop those little yuppie punks, Dale! Tonight, there's terror on the freeway. Really scared them. Can we? Can you see the look on their faces? Hey, hey, look at that. You're folk here already. This is ridiculous. This is Frank Smuts. I don't believe this. It's easy for us reporting this story to forget there's a very scared little girl inside that car. Do you have a girlfriend? No, I don't have a girlfriend. What kind of nut is this? You haven't been with a woman in a couple years. Things can get really messy now. So it's conceivable that you'd never be with a woman ever again, right? Right. What the hell is he swerving all over for? What are you doing? Falling in love with you. It's hard to tell just how far he's going to go with this, Bill. The chase. Getting there is twice the fun. (laughs) And now... Hey, Rocky! Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Nothing up my sleeve. Presto! (laughs) No doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like.
Hi everyone, Justin Bell here, race car driver turned TV and web host. I'm still trying to work out what that means. Anyway, I am the co-host of the talk show with Tommy Kendall around all the IMSA races. And right now we're on Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Welcome, you're tuning into Nostalgic Video and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And go to NostalgicRadioandCars.com, and you can listen to all 562, maybe 63, maybe tonight, maybe 64 shows. Good evening, Tommy. How you doing there? In Good the- evening, Robert. Just it, wonderful, thank you. Just wait in the in the yourself. I'm hanging in there. Yeah, it looks like you got a lot of chaos going on in there right now. <laughs> Whatever is the that's the way we start nostalgic radio. That's the way we roll. That's exactly right. Okay, well, what did we do this weekend? The usual. Hey, Avery, how you doing? He's in there. He's our new uh, board engineer, board op, as they say in the slang terms in the in the industry. But at any rate, um, yeah. So uh, this weekend, we'll see. I went to two car shows. I went to a little car show up there in Inverness, and that was on a uh, on Friday under the thunderclouds, and uh, that has a tendency to scare cars away. I don't know what it is about that, but uh, you know, a cloud in the sky—it's a car. It's you know, you, you wash it off and you rinse it off and you drive it in the you know rain, snow, sleet, or shine, and you'll be fine. You know, get it? Rain, snow, sleet, or shine—you'll be fine. Anyway, um, and then Saturday, my buddy and I, IG, drove up to, uh, well, we went junkyarding. And uh, junkyarding's kind of a, I really need to post some of those pictures because it's just interesting to see some of the stuff that's still out there. Unfortunately, it just got away from, and Mother Nature got a hold of it and kind of ruined some of that stuff. But it is kind of nostalgic, and it is kind of fun to do that once in a while, you know, in between, you know, dodging rattlesnakes and moccasins and gators and whatever else is out there in the swampy marshes of florida then we went to the thriving uh world of the villages car show which they do every third saturday of the month and we've gotten to be kind of regulars there i've actually been there quite a bit over the last four five six years because it's kind of a fun show you know it's old downtown town square kind of thingy you know they got music and dancing stuff like that we did the town square it's uh, got, you know, it looks like something you see in, in, the, in the movie Back to the Future and, you know, restaurants all over the place and lots of cars. Guess what? If there's a couple clouds in the sky and it did, it, it did rain. They opened up a little bit. The guys had Corvette convertibles and Volkswagens and just, you know, Mustangs and all kinds of other stuff. 57 Chevrolets, Thunderbirds. And so they rained on them. Big deal. BFD, as we say, and uh, no big deal, you know. Some people went out and put a top on it. Some people just sat there under their umbrellas and watched it rain, you know. And, and I don't know how many millions of people piled in all the restaurants there, and they got a whole bunch of really good restaurants on the in the, up in the villages. So that's kind of a fun show. I actually liked it. And interestingly enough, I see different cars there all the time, so it's kind of cool. Anyway, we did do driving around because that's one of my my favorite things to do is drive around on the weekend, you know, like on a Saturday or Sunday when. People sometimes are tinkering in their garage, and you know the doors are open, and 
you know, it just never ceases to amaze me of what's out there. I don't care if you're cruising through the woods and there's big old four by four trucks or you might see some old Camaros and Mustangs and, you know, GM Intermediates. And I mean, we went to this one guy's place and he had an MGB GT in the backyard. Didn't see that from the street. Didn't see that even coming, you know, and I thought, wow, we open up the hood and well, lo and behold, there's a possum crawling around underneath there and his cat was trying to get at it. And this possum just kind of worked its way in back there by the firewall and just kind of hung out there. Could have been a snake. Who knows? You know, stranger things have happened. I haven't had that misfortune yet, although I have seen, ran across my share of rats and uh, and uh, wasps. Oh, man. Wow. But the most interesting thing I ran across this week, and I was probably where I wasn't supposed to be. You know, some of these areas are, some of these communities are gated, right? So you have to kind of, there's an art to getting in them, and uh, which I will not reveal. But, we were in one of these little trailer parks somewhere in Florida. And uh, I come rolling around the corner here. And this 73 Mercedes, I wasn't going to say this at first. I wasn't going to tell a story, but I can't resist because our subject again this evening is Porsches. And uh, But anyway, so there's this old ratty looking 73, 72, 73 Mercedes 350SL, which that's the first year, for 72 was the first year they changed the body style from the Pagodas. So 71, 72 was the first transition year. So 72, 73, small bumper car, Euro headlights, looks like a European car. This one had European headlights, so it could have been a Euro car, I don't know. But that kind of got my attention. But what really got my attention was the 66 Polo Red 356 that was sitting next to it. So at that point, I had to stop, hit the brakes, got out, took a picture of it. And then I looked in the back of the trailer park. Uh, uh, I guess you call it carport or whatever. And there was a 356 Cabriolet, an A. So 58, 57, 58, 59, something like that. And behind that was the hood up on a 70, 71, 72 Chevelle. I think it was a 70. And I could see that it was clearly a cowl induction hood because it had the ram air, you know, the cutout for it the hole for like where the air cleaner goes and I thought wow so I left the note needless to, say, needless to say I haven't heard back but so it just you just it never ceases to amazing me what's still out there one of my favorite websites bring a trailer and uh, and then there's other ones called barn finds and then we're going to get Jerry Heasley back on here and we're going to get we had uh, Don Ahern on a couple weeks ago and he's kind of like the Porsche treasure hunter and then there's Adam White he's another one that does it and there's a couple other people out there that do that and then Jerry is uh, 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 in the muscle cars, and there's another friend of mine out in uh, New Mexico or Texas area that he's another one that does that. So those are real interesting stories. I mean, I love doing that kind of stuff, you know. And um, someone showed me a picture of an old bug eye sitting in a junkyard, and I know right where it's at, but I just can't get to it because the place is never open. So there are still a lot of stuff out there. And again, where I'm going with this is that it's cool to find these cars, leave them alone, they're original, drive them if you do get them, if you're successful at it, you know, making a deal. And um, but you got to move quickly on these cars if if there's even a chance to get them. I mean, the other day I went to go look at a '70 Torino with for a lady, and I went over there and uh, it was a N code 429 Thunderbird motor automatic on the column air, nice car, super clean, super solid. I mean, unbelievable amounts of documentation. I mean, from day one, sold brand new right here at Walker Ford. I don't even know if I talked about it last week or not because I think I saw it. I just found it Thursday. But anyway, when she was opening up the door. There was this really cool Model A Ford Roadster in there, which 
I didn't even ask about the trainer because when the garage door opened up, because she said she's coming out, she's opening up the garage door. When the door opened up, I just like focused on that Model A. Not that I'm totally enthralled with that car, but I've never had one, and I'm kind of you know looking for something different. So you know, and here I am, I'm gravitating towards '30s cars. This was a 1929 Model A Roadster, kind of a rare car, not worth a big bunch of money. You know, they're eight, nine, ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollar cars. You know, I mean, I see them as much as twenty. Perfectly restored, but the beauty of this car, this was all original and a survivor car, one paint job. But it was really, really, really nice and really cool. And when you look at the car, I mean, you can see every detail. You can tell it's 100% mechanical. It's a mechanical car. It's real. I mean, that's just, you know, you can fix everything on it. Um, Pretty cool. Unlike the cars today where you open the hood and you look underneath it and you go, wow. And it's almost like everything's proprietary underneath there and you got to take it to a dealer. Anyway, on that note, I think Tommy's going to go ahead and file or find us a song. And uh, we're going to play a little 60, 70s stuff because, you know, that's what we do here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We play old stuff. Here's one of my favorites. This is Van Morrison's uh, Wild Nights. Hey, you're tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. So touch that dial. I'll come back with a few more lies, tales, and stories. Tampa Bay at Dunedin Brewery. Known as Florida's oldest microbrewery, they are always working to create a unique variety of craft beers for every taste. In addition, Dunedin Brewery features a full menu, including everything from their famous wings, burgers, salads, flatbreads, and more. Don't forget about their live music, including the Wednesday Night Players Jam. That's Dunedin Brewery, 937 Douglas Avenue in downtown Dunedin. Visit them online at dunedinbrewery.com. 
Looking for car shows? Then look no further than flacarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, flacarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at flacarshows.com. Okay, we're back and you tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. That was a, uh, those are Porsche GT3 sound effects there. I think I captured that at, I don't know, Daytona, maybe someplace like that, Sebring. At any rate, a big shout out to my buddy uh, Steve Sestito. Give him a call, 727-742-0007. He specializes in used fitness equipment. And, uh... He gets a lot of that cool stuff out there. I actually picked up a um, inversion table from him. So, yep, every once in a while I hang upside down like a Wuhan bat. <laughs> but I have no virus because I don't buy into that scamdemic BS. But anyway, but it's just kind of nice to stretch once in a while, especially when you're on your feet all day long and you're picking up stuff and you're kind of slowly compressing your body. It's one way to kind of. You know, unstress or unstretch or whatever, uncompress. So, yes, found a couple, a 356 and a 911 and a Mercedes and an SS Chevelle sitting underneath. Uh, or it might have been an El Camino. I couldn't see the back of it because it was so covered with stuff. But the stuff is out there. Really cool. Um, we got a special guest coming on here in a few minutes, and I'm looking forward to having him on the show. Um Big shout-out to our friends over there at uh, FLACarshows.com. Monterey Collective Car Week's coming up. The Shelby Meet's coming up. And Bonneville Speed Week's coming up. And uh, if you go to FLA Car Shows, you'll find out what's all going on here in the state of Florida. I don't think there's any swap meets going on. I think Leadfoot City's had theirs the other day because they're third Saturday of every month. My buddy uh, Jay stopped by. I guess there was some big deal going up in Springfield, Missouri or someplace like that, some hot rod thing. He brought back a... Really cool set of original magnesium 15 by 10 American racing wheels. Now, that's cool. Um, you always tell our magnesium because they kind of turn black. If you get too close with a match, they'll ignite. But that's kind of cool. Fireworks. No, I'm just kidding. Hey, well, by the way, 4th of July is right around the corner. Right, Tommy? 4th of July. Anyway, I think what we're going to do is we're going to fire up the stereo one more time, and then we're going to call our guest and have our guest come on, because this guy's real interesting. He's got kind of a interesting cross-section, but he has, he has a thing for speed, like the rest of us here. He's a speed freak, speed demon, and he's got the track record to prove it. So that's interesting. Um, different track record, but nevertheless, speed. Speed's fun. Hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic and Cars. Don't touch that doll. I'll be right back.
you, but it just drives me crazy when you start buying pieces you don't know anything about. Enjoyment's enjoyment, Sandy. Don't worry about it. All right, all right. Tommy. Tommy, for God's sakes, come on. We're late as it is. All right, Sandy. Is that one of those red Italian things? One of those red Italian things. This is Hurley Haywood. I've won five times at Daytona, three times at Le Mans, and two times at Sebring. And you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman's a um, an author, an automotive journalist, and a former downhill skier with a pretty significant record to prove it. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Sean Cridlin. Sean, how are you doing this evening? Hey, Robert. How are you tonight? Uh, feeling great and looking forward to a little uh, car talk with you. Excellent. Well, but first got to ask you, 126 miles an hour uh, uh, going downhill? And, um, but wait a minute. You trained at 160? Well, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the sport I was doing back then was called speed skiing. Yeah. And it's uh, skiing downhill over 120 miles an hour. And the way I trained for that was on top of a car on the Bonneville Salt Flats, the famous Vesco Streamliner. Uh, and I went through the mile uh, in all my speed skiing gear on top of that car at 162 miles an hour. Okay. Now, let me – I'm sitting down now. So explain to me how you – well, what does it take to strap yourself to the top of a Streamliner at the Bonneville Salt Flats – uh, running 162 miles an hour, and how did you get away with that? That's <laughs> well, the first question, I guess. First of all, we had uh, some great engineering. Rick Vesco of the of the famous Bonneville Vesco family engineered all the proper uh, pieces, mechanical and body pieces we need to we needed to do that to keep me stable on top of the car. And then after that, of course, it was me and my speed skiing gear, and and essentially instead of a windmill or a, a wind tunnel. Um, it was a, it was a car moving through the air, so I got a lot of uh, really valuable uh, wind training out of that. So it was really a fantastic experience, and of course, uh, the Vesco family has uh, been setting records out there since the 1950s, and and they are the absolute best team that you could possibly work with out there. So was this a gradual thing? So you start out, let's just say, at 50 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, and so on, until you get up to 162. No, I did uh, three runs, essentially. The record for that before I did it had been 127 miles an hour. I did an installation run at 114. I did uh, a record-setting run at 148. And then I uh, did what I referred to as the, well, we won't say that word on the radio, um, run in which uh, I bumped up the record so that nobody would be able to touch it for a long time. And in fact, that record uh, now has been holding for 36 years. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. I mean, you take some pretty serious commitment, stamina, and those little round things to do that. <laughs> so uh, my hat's off to you. And now let me ask you this. So if you're strapped up there, if you're up there 162 miles an hour, okay, so you're leaning in. I ski, okay, so I kind of know what it's like to ski. I know what gears like. I just can't fathom, and I have no idea how fast I've ever gone, you know, maybe 40, 50, maybe, you know, straight down as fast as I possibly could, hunched over with my jaws flapping in the breeze, scared to death because I was knew I was in trouble. Um, 
because really, you know, when you when you're going straight down, it's like you can't really stop. You just wait till you you just ride it out, you know, until it kind of the grade changes, and then you slow down a little bit that way. Then you can turn sideways, I guess. But it's not exactly like you want to do the, uh, the 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 V thing. But so you're up there on that car. Are you in any kind of like a trapeze or anything like that, or are you just basically up there free forming? No, no, there was. Uh... Uh, Mr. Vesco made uh, special brackets for the skis to fit in. So I was in my speed speed skiing gear, uh, you know, the special suit, the special helmet, uh, the fins on the back of the legs and stuff like that. And and uh, But essentially, uh, I was hands-free. You know, I was just in my wow. truck, just as if I would be uh, on the snow. So what got you into speed skiing like that? Uh, well, um... Were you a slalom skier before that? Racers. Pardon me? People are car racers, and uh, for me, uh, I always loved that sport, but I couldn't really afford the car, so I figured um, I could be the car. So um, when we were doing uh, speed skiing, I could uh, experience all the same kinds of things that the racers were experiencing, but I didn't have a car around me. And uh, I enjoyed the technological side because, uh, of course, in the 70s and 80s are when uh, many of the uh, greatest aerodynamic achievements were made. and. And I was working out those same kinds of things for my own self to see how how much faster I could go downhill, um, you know, with some little uh, some little tricks that I learned from Jim Hall's Chaparral or from Colin Chapman's Lotus. Okay, that's good segue into the car business. But let me ask you this again: So, were you like a giant slalom skier before that, or was it just? I mean, any other kind of? Did you do any other kind of professional skiing before, prior to that? Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, I raced on the Colorado Pro Tour. Um, I was a really good high school racer back when I was a kid, uh, in especially in slalom. Okay. Um, and uh, and then I also uh, taught skiing at Snowmass for several years. So uh, yeah, I did I did all kinds of skiing. Okay. So physically yourself, are you kind of a big guy? I am. I'm six feet five inches tall, and uh, when I was at my peak uh, condition, I weighed about two forty. Okay, so does the height and the size is that an advantage to you? I mean, to someone in that pursuing that 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 goal, let's say. During my era, people thought that, but then, uh, as it turned out, uh, in later years, there were several people who set records in that sport who were of a smaller size. So it turned out that it wasn't necessarily the size; it had much more to do with the uh, with the shape and uh, you know attention to aerodynamics. Okay. So how does uh, Colin Chapman and uh, Jim Hall come into this play? Well, for me, uh, you know, as a kid, uh, looking at all the technological stuff in Formula One and Can-Am series and so on, uh, I was always paying attention to the kinds of things that people were doing uh, to, to, to make their cars go faster. And uh, as I said, I didn't have those kinds of resources, so I applied them to the sport that I was doing. Okay. Interesting, interesting. Speaking of cars, did you ever were you ever involved in any kind of racing at all? I mean, after that? <laughs> no, in fact, uh, I wasn't. Although um, uh, I, I attended my first U.S. Grand Prix in 1964 when I was, uh, I think, eight years old, nine years old, and and uh, but I read uh, car magazines for most of my life as if they were comic books. In other words. Uh, I enjoyed all the stuff that I read, but I never thought that I would be intimately involved in any kind of way. I didn't uh, fancy myself as, uh, you know, eventually being on a team or as much as I might have fantasized about being a driver. Uh, I knew it wasn't going to happen. I just liked reading about it. Okay. So back in the day when you were a skier and you were basically uh, 
you know, um, a young guy in Snowmass, which is a beautiful area, by the way. I have been there, but I've been in Steamboat and some of the other places in Colorado. Um, and I'm from out west. I'm from California, so our, our, our stomping ground was Squaw Valley and Lake Tahoe and, and that area. So that's kind of where I kind of went down the slopes a lot. But at any rate, um, so what'd you bum around in for a vehicle back in the day? Did, let me guess. You had a Volkswagen bus? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was worse than that. It was oh, worse. a Volkswagen Squareback that I bought for $300 and usually had about $5,000 worth of skis on the top. Oh, okay. <laughs> so how did you wind up in automotive journalism? I mean, you've already pretty much uh, kind of give us a hint. You read magazines like like most kids read comic books, Tom and Jerry. You're reading uh, Road and Track, Car and Driver, and Sports Car Graphic, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. I read that and On Track and Auto Week and uh, Formula and just about every other car magazine that you could think of. And and of course, amongst the people that I was reading about were these guys named Peter Gregg and Hurley Haywood, um, and uh, and the Brumos team, and uh, they were some of my greatest heroes. But um, I never, uh, you know, as, as I said, it was always fantasy for me. But uh, in the in the two thousand early two thousands, I bought a nineteen ninety uh, Porsche Carrera four. And that kind of led me into the world of the Porsche Club of America. And then uh, I started being the newsletter editor for my local region. And then I started uh, sending in articles to Porsche Panorama magazine now and then. And, you know, one year I published one and I thought that was cool. And a couple of years later, I published two or three. And then, and then people started asking for my pieces. So, I, you know, then it turned into like, seven or eight a year and then uh, after a few years i was doing three or four a month hmm. uh and along the way uh someone mentioned to me that there had been no book on peter Gregg, and i thought well that would be kind of a cool idea i've never done a book but w- what a place to start <laughs> and um along the uh, that path i met hurley uh-huh. uh he said uh well you know I'll, I'll help you in any way i can and um uh, we tried uh, doing it for a while it just wasn't panning out and uh, I called him one day to say, hey, you know, thanks for your help, but it's not happening. And uh, his response was, well, nobody's done a book on me. <laughs> well, let me ask you real quick. His son, Simon, didn't Simon give you a lot of help and, and, and insight uh, about his dad? Uh, not then, no. You know, uh, the, during that stage of my career, nobody had really heard that much about me. Okay. And so uh, I wasn't getting any contact at all. Um, however, uh, once I did Hurley's book, then I got to know Simon and Jason both. Okay. And they were um, very, very helpful uh, with the Brumos book. Okay, because they have a. I think they started the foundation now, didn't they? In their father's honor. Yes, that's right. Simon just started the Peter Gregg Foundation, uh, and the uh, the uh, the stated goal on that is to help. Uh, uh, um, mechanics and crew members get their start in racing, and it's a highly commendable project, and I applaud him for that. Did Hurley tell you the story how he met Peter Gregg? Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, With the Corvette and how he blew him away at an autocross? Oh, absolutely. In, <laughs> fact, uh, in fact, that was a big part of the, the Hurley book that I did a couple years ago, and and then since then, um, I was man- I managed to dig up some photos from that event. Really? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. They're all in the brand new Brumos book that I just did. Excellent, excellent. Now tell us about. Now I'm a big Brumos fan. Okay, I mean you got to admit Peter Schutz we had on our show here a number of years ago, who was at you know during the '80s he was the president of Porsche and kind of like 
the the guy that saved the 9-11, so to speak. And uh, he was a huge um, Brumos fan, and, and we would talk about this. And it, I always got the impression that Brumos was like Porsche's little darling. And whatever Brumos wanted, whatever they needed to be competitive and to win, they got it. So how much truth is there to that since you just did the research? Well, I think that there's quite a bit of truth to that. And uh, the history of that, though, uh, goes back much further than most people know. To and, Mr. Uh, Brundage back in the day when he started in 1955? Yeah, actually, um, um, Hubert Brundage uh, started selling Volkswagens in the early 50s and then, uh, and then eventually Porsches. And uh, the way he got his Porsche distributorship came as a result of a conflict that he had with the... Hello? Are you there? Do we just lose... Hey, Avery, check the phone, because I think we just lost our our guest. And uh, anyway, we're uh, on the phone here, and we're talking to uh, Sean Cridlin. And Sean is uh, the author of two books, one about Hurley Haywood, who is probably one of the winningest Porsche drivers um, out of the 70s. And... Um, and, and just drove and the number fifty nine car from 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 Brumos, and uh, just pretty amazing stuff. And then of course Brumos, we're talking about Brumos Porsche Audi um, out of Jacksonville, Florida, and they were like, and of course you know back in the day, a lot of the Porsches that came in from overseas were d- dropped off at the ports up there in um, in uh, Jacksonville. So Brumos was right there, and I'm not sure. if Brumos did a lot of the PDIs on most of the cars, or how the how that all went. But it was started back like we were just talking about a few minutes ago with um, Mr. Brundage, who started um, the Volks as a Volkswagen dealer, and then got the Porsche um, franchise. And of course, we're going to find out a little bit more about how that all came about. But where the name Brumos came from? See, Peter Gregg was somehow indirectly involved with with the Porsche dealership, and I'm not sure if he bought into it or how the whole story goes. And Brumos, B-R-U-M-O-S, was the Telex um, link to, and if you're familiar with back in the day before we had the internet, um, in the 70s, late 60s, 70s, they had a thing called the Telex. And uh, the Telex was, if you wanted to send, we got our guest on the line? Sean, are you there? I'm back. All right. So while you were are while while you were moonlighting, <laughs> I was kind of filling everybody in a little bit about the Brumos story, and I got to the Brumos and the Telex thing. But we'll back up. We'll go back to tell us about how Brunage got the the Porsche dealership. Yeah. So uh, you know he started off uh, importing uh, Volkswagens and mm-hmm. gave him enough of a distributorship and the and the shipping uh, arrangements and. Uh, and all that, so that eventually, uh, when he had a kind of a run-in with Max Hoffman over a few issues, um, he started to go to battle, uh, and uh, eventually managed to peel away his own Porsche distributorship by the night by 1959. Really? But I but I heard you talking a little bit about the Telex, and uh, right, and that actually uh, that came into being back in about 53. Uh, in the book, we actually have one of those uh, Telexes from 1955. And, you can see exactly what it looks like. It's pretty cool, and that's of course the the origin of the of the Brumos name. Yeah, it was like the call. Uh, you had call letters back in those days, and that's where Brumos came from. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the BRU from Brundage and MOS from Motors. I'll be darned. Well, okay, so 
um, now Mr. Brundage back then he was it, he was pretty aggressive and pretty involved with racing back in in the late fifties, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, he and his family, his son Jan, and, and by the way, Jan is still alive and and consulted uh, with me on this book throughout really? the project. But uh, but they started racing uh, first uh, with a Duesenberg back in the late forties, uh, and then uh, a Volkswagen, a very famous Volkswagen Special in nineteen fifty two, and then eventually with Porsches uh, in the mid fifties. And by 1960 and 61, they were hiring drivers like Bob Holbert and Roger Penske to drive for them. Interesting, interesting. Um, well, there's something I want to ask you, because there was a couple of cars that were um, raced back in the day that came through Brumos or were Brumos-sponsored cars. And two of those cars were someplace hidden out in California. And I had the pleasure of seeing those cars. And the guy that owns them says, well, Robert, since you're in Florida... Maybe you can dig up some information on those cars. Well, I contacted Brumos. This was a number of years ago. And I wasn't able to find any of the old mechanics or anybody that had a lot of information on it. But you might have that key. So we'll talk about that off the air. But when you wrote this book, Brumos, okay, so Hurley's book came out first. And what was it like working with Hurley? And how long did it take you to, to compile all the information to be able to produce this or uh, publish this book? Well, um, you know, I started talking uh, at first with Hurley in 2015, mm-hmm. and um, as I mentioned, you know, he, he suggested that I write his book, and we started putting together some ideas. Uh, we spent about a year just in the kind of idea stage until uh, when, I, when he told me that Patrick Dempsey was making the film about his life. I oh, thought, really? Well, we need to get serious about it. So uh, then I, we spent another year and a half uh, writing it, uh, extensive interviews with Hurley and several of the people who, who he co-drove with or raced against. Um, and then eventually, uh, you know, I put together all the photos that would complement his story and so on. And so we, uh, we published that book, uh, and it made its debut in March of 2018. And, uh, and Hurley was fantastic to work with. Um, I describe him as a prince in every best sense of the word. Uh, he's really a great guy. He's humble. He's uh, he's bright. He's uh, he's considerate. Um, you know, when he gets on the racetrack, he's a natural-born killer. But when he's off, he's a perfect gentleman. Um, let me correct me if I'm wrong. Now, it seems to me I had a discussion. We had Bob Tullius on the show at one point in time. Bob's obviously, you know, the the '44 Tullius Jaguars and stuff, and 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 uh, oh, I can't think of the name of this company right now, but uh, Group 44. That's what it was. Okay, D- am I correct? Did Hurley Haywood drive for Bob Tullius at one point in time? And is, and if so, is that in the book? Oh gosh, well, yeah, actually, in the in the Hurley's book, that's a, a a pretty major chapter because you know in. 1983, he had won Le Mans for the second time. He came back. Hurley used to be the kind of guy who would race every weekend. Uh, you know, if, if, he, if the team that he was with didn't have a ride uh, going for him, he'd, he'd find another ride to race that next weekend. So he was actually uh, doing that uh, at most part in the summer of 83. He jumped in a second car, and uh, he broke his leg really badly. Uh, in fact, so badly that he couldn't push down a clutch for you know, the next two years. And it turns out that the Jaguar had a Hewland transmission crash box. So all, you only needed to use the clutch coming up, in and out of the pits. And so it was the perfect car for him to drive. And, and so uh, Porsche actually let him uh, 
move over to Jaguar for those years so he could keep his talent sharp. And uh, he did uh, very well. Uh, the ja- that Jaguar team was the only non-Porsche team that won races for the next couple of years. Well, it's interesting because Bob Tullius was totally impressed with Hurley as a driver. He said that it was just an absolutely amazing guy and treated the equipment right. Exactly. Yeah, he's always been very, uh, very gentle on equipment and on tires, and that's you know one of the tricks of of Hurley's winning is that uh, his cars uh, don't get worn out as badly. It's interesting because you you talk about natural talent. You know, I mean, he that's just something he had, and, and there are some drivers out there have that, but the majority of them don't. You know, and I've, I've interviewed some people that said in the past that well, we probably would have won more races had we been a little bit more mindful of the equipment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so the Brumos thing. So then, how the Brumos story come up? The uh, storyline come about? Well, that's uh, that's a story unto itself, and. Uh you know, uh, as we came to a, a completion with Hurley's book, I talked to Mr. Davis, uh, Dan Davis, over there at Jacksonville, who has uh, the Brumos collection now uh, and had the Brumos team then. And I said, well, you know, don't you think it would be a good idea to have a, a Brumos history book? And he agreed that it would be. Um, and uh, we started off with this project being about the same size as the Hurley book. Um, but something really interested ha- interesting happened along the way, and that is that the Brundage family sent to me three legal-sized boxes of letters, pictures, documents, and so on. What I thought would be one or two chapters about the Brundage-era Brumos turned into nine chapters. Um, and so we don't even introduce uh, Peter Gregg to the story until about page 380, and Hurley, I think, is uh, around page 400. So um, what most people understand as Brumos was actually kind of the, the second act of Brumos. Um, of course, it's the most classic in most people's minds uh, in terms of American sports car racing. But um, but yeah, there were, the Brundages had a had a major impact on not just racing but but on the way the automotive industry uh, came to be in the United States. In fact, I would say that the Brundages were kind of on their way to being a Penske-like character you know, 10 years before Roger Penske. When they had, when, when, you, when you did the story and you're doing the, the, the Brumo story, obviously we know that Roger Penske um, was one of the drivers and Holbert, Bob's not around, but Roger is. Were you able to interview Roger Penske and get any insight? Because I think he drove a Spider, if I remember correctly. Yep, they shared, uh, they, they shared a Porsche RS61 at Sebring. Mm-hmm. Um, we did talk a little bit, but uh, not quite as much about those experiences. Uh, however, uh, Jack Atkinson, who was Peter Gregg's crew chief all through the 70s, had actually started uh, working for the Brundages in 1955. Oh, really? He was, uh, he was on that project along with a guy named Sigmund Myerland, and they were the two team mechanics for both 60 and 61, and you know, Jack's still around, and Jack has a memory like a steel trap. Uh, so really? he was able to provide all kinds of great information about those years. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so these are the two books that you've got right now that, that are most notable. What else are you working on? Now, somehow there's a connection there with Flat Sixes, with Road Scholars. What's that? Well, you know, before I started uh, working on these book projects, I was doing um, – magazine articles and uh, website articles. And so, uh, you know, I was, I, I called myself a stone turner. And that, by that I mean that I never really had assignments. I just went around the country and 
and looked for the most interesting stories I could possibly find, stories that were out, so kind of out of the way but, uh, but so compelling that editors would have to pick them. And so along the way, I did uh, a story on Jerry Seinfeld's uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Um, I did uh, stories that took me to the very highest peak in, on the Malibu coast, and I did stories that took me to some of the roughest neighborhoods in L.A. Uh, uh, with, a, with a 356 Lowrider. Uh, 356 Lowrider? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was one of the most fun stories I ever did because it was... Uh, because it was different, you know. A lot of Porsche stories end up being about uh, uh, different paint coats or, you know, certain colors or things of that nature. And this one uh, took me to an entirely different cultural experience. So, um, you know, I did the very first uh, driving comparison of the of the uh, Porsche Carrera, uh, uh, let's see, Porsche Carrera, yeah, the uh, the supercar, the Carrera GT, mm-hmm. uh, uh, compared to the Porsche 918. So that was the cover story for Excellence Magazine in, in the fall of uh, 2016. Um, so I've had some, you know, by, by being a stone turner, I was able to find a lot of different interesting and cool stories. Now, do you write primarily um, Porsche-related articles, or do you do other cars as well? I mostly do Porsche stuff, and, and really the only reason for that is that they keep me busy. Okay. Um, Another I like int- other things, of course, but... Uh, but I'm busy doing Porsche stuff. Okay, you you mentioned Patrick Dembski, and I'm, I won't talk about him in a second, but what about Jeff Swart? Have you done anything with him? Well, you know, I've done the uh, the uh, the articles for Porsche Panorama Magazine on Pikes Peak every year for the last seven now. Okay. Um, and I've spent a lot of time on Pikes Peak around uh, Jeff Swart and some of his uh, ultra-competitors, uh, namely David Donner and David Donahue. Um, uh, who are also very fast in Porsches on that mountain. So, Is uh, David Donahue, that's the son of Greg Donahue, right? Uh, Mark Donahue. Or Mark Donahue, I mean, Donahue. sorry. Yep. And, and a fun fact, um, Bob Donner, who is David Donner's uh, uh, dad, uh, was the very first person to win a class on Pikes Peak in a Porsche. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of interesting uh, Porsche people who have been in, in and off that mountain. Okay, let's talk about uh, the. You mentioned uh, Patrick Dempsey and a movie about Hurley Haywood. Tell us about that, or can you talk about that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That that uh, that came out in the spring of 2018. Now, and uh, and so Patrick Dempsey uh, started talking to Hurley. Uh, I think back in 2013, 2014. Uh, first as a racer, but then uh, once they got to know each other. A little bit more about uh, about Hurley's life and about the way he grew up and and uh, his involvement of, in racing and uh, there was a storyline there that uh, that Patrick Dempsey found very interesting uh, and it's it's one that's uh, now well known but at the time was not uh, which is of course that Hurley's gay and uh, you know uh, back then you know uh, racers. Um, were known for being almost uber uh, heterosexual. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, the classic story is you oh, win yeah. the race, you kiss the girl. Right. Uh, James Hunt was a good example of that. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so uh, to, you know, to, for a lot of people to find out that, in fact, uh, the person who is you know, thought of as being one of the most macho guys for winning five times at Daytona, three times at Le Mans, 
uh, twice at Sebring, many championships, many, many race wins, um, was was uh, not the stereotypical guy that they thought that, that he would be. Um, and uh, so anyway, he uh, he used uh, the book and uh, and the film as a way to get the message out and to help uh, to help uh, young people around the country uh, with their own issues and their own personal issues that are coming out. And, uh, they're they're both uh, beautiful stories, especially uh, Patrick Dempsey's film is more personal. My uh, book was uh, all encompassing, both in terms of social issues, but also much more weighted on the racing. But uh, both were great platforms, and and it was amazing uh, as we were doing our book tour uh, uh, how many people came up and thanked Hurley for for doing that, and 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 then expressed some of their own experiences uh, within the racing world. And, and how uh, his book and, and film helped them. Well, now, um, is it true? Ayrton Senna was also gay? Oh, I have no idea. Okay, because I was just curious. There was a couple other well-known drivers, and I think there was some rumors about that, but who knows. At any rate, okay, so when you, when you is the is the movie out already, or is it in production still? Oh, yeah. No, it's uh, it's out already. Uh, you can actually get it on Amazon. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it streams. Uh, I think there, it might stream on Hulu also, and maybe a couple other platforms, but... Okay. You know, but, um, and it's also available in DVD. So uh, what's next for uh, Sean Cridlin? What book? Well, um, right now I'm, uh, we've, we've really just kind of finished the, the Brumos book, and mm-hmm. now I'm uh, out on the road. I'm actually in upstate New York. I'm heading over to Watkins Glen in the next couple of days, and uh, we'll start promoting and uh, selling the book. And uh, I'm really excited to have people see it. Um, as I mentioned, it started off as uh, an idea to be the size of Hurley's book, and now, in fact, it's three volumes. It's 1,500 pages. Oh. It's over 2,000 images. It has a who's who of, uh, of photographers, including uh, Hal Crocker and Dave Friedman and Leonard Turner and uh, Pete Byro. And, I mean, the list goes on and on of the, of the great photography that's in it that were the, the classic photographers of their days. Um, and uh, the, the Penske... Uh, uh, Roger Penske actually did the foreword for the book. Oh, really? Volume 1 has a, a beautiful uh, multi-page uh, foreword by Roger to talk about the Brumos brand and his experience and, and his influence by the Brundages. And then uh, uh, Volume 2, the foreword is by Bill Warner, who, of course, is the advisor of Amelia Island. And then Volume 3, the foreword is by Patrick Dempsey himself. Oh, wow. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Sean, we are up against the clock. If people want to find out more about you, your books, and where you're headed next, how do they go about doing it? Uh, to find out about me, uh, they could go to visionsofpower.com and to order the new Brumos book, they would go to thebrumoscollection.com. Okay. Visions of Power, is that a website? That's a website, correct. Okay, super. I just wrote that down myself. Um Sean, I want to thank you very much. Um, I th- it was an excellent interview, uh, very enlightening, very informative. And I like it because you know Brumus is in my backyard. I know Hurley, and you know it's really and Bill Warner, Patrick. I've never met. I actually I take that back. I met him one time, invited him to come on the show, and then we're still working on that. But nonetheless, uh, you're a fascinating guy. Um, true, true commitment kind of guy to speed. I appreciate that. Um, and again, I want to thank you very much for taking some time out and hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Yeah, thank you, Robert. I really enjoyed it. So uh, have a good, great evening. We will have you on again in the future when you come out with your next uh, couple of books. How about that? 
fantastic. All right. Well, you have a great uh, weekend. Spend some time with your family. Have fun at Watkins Glen, and uh, we'll be in touch. All right. So long. Thank you very much. I want to thank my special guests, Sean Cridlin, author, automotive journalist, Hurley Haywood, and Brumos Collection. If you ever get a chance, go up there and check out the the museum up in uh, Jacksonville. It's amazing, pretty amazing. I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen lots of pictures. And uh, 162 miles an hour strapped to the top of a car in Bonneville Soft Flats and ski gear. Well, all right. Hey, in the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't forget, you can find us here every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Sand Talk Radio Network. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com. Follow us on social media. I need to get more on that. Um, check out our past shows, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, all 564, I guess, something like that. And we'll see some of the car shows. In the meantime, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.